really tough section. It's, a, it's all about God and choosing some to be vessels of glory and others as vessels of destruction. And it's, it's a hard, hard passage. But at the end of it, in Romans 11, starting in verse 33, Paul just gets caught up in this doxology. So the riches and the wonders. God's, God's plan is so beyond the scope of my comprehension. I don't understand it, but I know it's meant to draw me into greater worship of him. And I think something like that is happening here. This all-surpassing glory, he's caught up in a vision of it as well. <clears throat> but the vision is that that change, which we all long for and God guarantees, comes from Christ. He has secured it. He has ushered in a new covenant. There's a, a man named Bob Flayhart, who is <clears throat> a fellow pastor at a church in our denomination, who in his book, The Gospel Waltz, says there is nothing, not a single thing, outside of Christ's transforming power in our lives that holds any promise of lasting change. I don't know about you, but that helps my heart to stop looking for anything more apart from Christ. And that's really what Paul was talking about last week. The, the hope for any lasting, substantial change cannot come just from a self-improvement program or anything else other than the God who's created you, entering into you and doing that construction work on your heart. He is the only hope for that lasting change. <clears throat> and Paul is saying the same thing here today. And he does it by looking back at the Old Testament, at the Old Covenant, this agreement that God made with his people, <clears throat> which came to them on tablets of stone. <clears throat> so it was codified, it was written down, as many of you know, when Moses had led, his, led God's people out into the wilderness, he says, you're going to be my people, I will be your God. And this is what it looks like to walk in my ways. And he comes down with the Ten Commandments. Just first four, dealing with man's relationship with God, and the next six, dealing with man's relationship with man. And we know it's all summed up in the New Testament by loving God and loving others. That's what it looks like. But at that time, there were just laws written on a tablet with consequences if you disobeyed those laws. And so this mosaic covenant that comes is a, a covenant dictated by this set of laws. And we may not think of it as glorious, but actually, Paul does. Paul says there is a certain amount of glory that came with this old covenant, because compared to the other nations, they didn't have a God who entered into a relationship with them and said, this is what it looks like. There was something, something vibrant and real about that. Yet, it wasn't complete. It wasn't total. It was pointing some forward to something else. Nonetheless, in these verses, you can see that this ministry that came was, in fact, it came with glory. We've talked about glory before from the Old Testament uh, and, and the Hebrew idea of kavod or this idea of heavy and weighty. And I've given the illustration, but it's, it bears repeating, I think. If you go buy a watch that is very affordable, uh, it, maybe you go to some large city. I think of New York City because I've purchased something like that there before. And a guy opens up his jacket and he says, hey, here's, here's a Rolex, right? And you say, well, how much does it cost? Five bucks, five bucks, you know, whatever. I, how about two? Three, three, three bucks or whatever. Like a, and I put it on. Now, it's like, look, I got a Rolex. Is it really a Rolex? 
we'd like to think it is, but it stops working. Maybe it's really light. It's not, re it's not real. It's a cheap substitute. And when we look at the Old Testament in the Bible, we see idolatry, right? Worship, we're designed to worship something. They're just cheap substitutes of the real thing. And so this is the idea of glory. God is the real thing. He is heavy. It literally means heavy. He is weighty. He has substance because he is the realest thing of all. And everything else is just a cheap substitute. Now, we know our hearts are designed to worship something. And so when we're pulled to worship a cheap substitute, we desire for it to, to meet our needs. But it can never do that totally. It's just a cheap Rolex watch. Why, why settle for that when you can have the real thing? And even in the Old Testament, when Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive those Ten Commandments. He's gone for a, a little while, a segment of hours that the people down below get frustrated that he's already led them out of the desert. But they say, how about this guy Moses? Where is he? He went up on the mountain and they know they need to worship something. So they say, you know what? I don't know if he's ever coming back. Let's make a cheap substitute, a calf. Give us all your gold and we'll bow down and worship that. And when Moses comes back down in Exodus chapter 33, he sees them worshiping a golden calf. He's only been gone for a little while. See how quickly our hearts stray from what is really true, what is weighty and heavy, and design something else. It's a cheap, empty substitute. Our hearts long to drink from a well, but it's just not working. And when he comes down, he breaks those tablets and and in between, it's so fascinating because he's asked to see God's glory. And God says, you can't handle it. It's like, you can't handle the truth type thing. You can't see my face. You can see my backside. And this, a lot of this is about entering into God's presence, experiencing who he is. It's so heavy and it's so weighty. And there's all these these ways that you get into the actual presence of God, only one person on the Day of Atonement and only one who's been selected because God's presence is so strong, so filled with glory, you can't be in his presence. And one of my Old Testament professors claimed that in old Hebrew texts they would talk about the high priest entering the Holy of Holies, the place where God's Glory filled that presence with a bell on him in case it stopped ringing. And they would put a rope there and drag him out because he was dead in God's presence. That's how heavy his glory is. And these commandments then are, are a way that God says, you want to experience my glory? It's not just some concept out there. It's the way you live your life. It's who you worship. It's how you treat other people. This is what it looks like. So he gave him the law. But that law, Paul says, actually is a ministry that brought death. Now, look at this comparison between the two, the old covenant. It's a ministry that brought death. It actually condemned them, and it was temporary. That's what he says in verses 7, 8, and 11. How is that possible? Well, the reason is because the law cannot produce the righteousness it demands. The law is just do this, but it doesn't give you the power to actually obey. It just says do this or here's the consequence. That's just law. It's pointing forward to and waiting for somebody who would obey the law perfectly because they just couldn't do it. 
He's just gone for a handful of hours. They're already wandering to something else. And there were consequences that came as a result. Because God's weightiness, his glory, means so much. It has such intrinsic value that if you're worshiping something else, that's not what you're designed to worship. There's a consequence paid for it. And ultimately, it's death. So their hearts, along with ours, are waiting for a time when the Messiah would come and he would take care of all the things we could not do. The law cannot produce the righteousness it demands. Pilgrim's Progress, some of you maybe have read that, written by John Bunyan when he was in, in jail. And it's a, an allegory, a picture of the Christian life. At, at one point, he's going up the hill of difficulty, and he's going up uh, this, this hill, uh, but he makes the trip over and over and over again because as soon as he starts getting to the top, a man knocks him down. He's just trying to be obedient, and he gets hit and knocked down, hit and knocked down. And finally he says to the man, would you have mercy on me? I'm just trying to get to the top and do the right thing. He says, I can't. And this man's name was Moses. It was a picture of the law. You can't, I remember one of, uh, somebody in my life as well saying, you know, policemen at the end of the year, they don't go to your house and give you an award for obeying the law. Like, all we do is get pulled over by them or escape getting pulled over if we've broken it. But if you do everything right, which, let's face it, none of us actually does, probably. But if you are that person who stops and, and does, never speeds, you're not getting an award at the end of the year. They exist to find people who are breaking the law and punish them. That's what the law is. The law doesn't show mercy in that respect. It just executes a harsh reality. And that's what happened to this man, faithful, who's trying to get to the top of the mountain over and over. And eventually, Moses stops. But the only reason is because another man approaches and tells, tells him, tells this man, Moses, that mercy has been shown and the law's demands have been met. And faithful turns and see who the man is. He has holes in his hands inside. And he knows it's Jesus. Jesus meets the demands of the law, even though we never could. And that gives us a picture of how the new covenant is better, at least starts to. It's not a ministry that brings death. It's a ministry of the spirit. And because of that, it's written in our hearts like we saw last week, and not just on the letter. The letter kills, just like this law. It's more glorious. This brings righteousness, not condemnation, because we can never meet the demands of the law. And because of that, it's a surpassing glory and it endures forever. How is the new covenant ushered in by Christ more glorious? And this is how. The law cannot produce the righteousness it demands. And yet Jesus meets the demands of the law. He obeys to perfection. And on the cross, he pays the price of our imperfection. And even better, that price is paid once for all. In the Old Testament, if you were out of you know, accord with God because of sin, you'd have to offer a sacrifice again and again and again and again. And the beat goes on. Is there one who can offer the sacrifice once for all? Only the one who's perfectly met the demands of the law. And we find him in Christ, 
who is the very exact representation of God's glory, who comes full of grace and truth and says, we have beheld him now, we have seen him, the one full of grace and truth, the glory of God, incarnated, wrapped in flesh. He gives us his spirit as an inheritance. We saw this in the former verses, a down payment. He writes the law on our hearts and he guarantees what is to come. How much greater, Paul says, in verse 14, is the glory of that which lasts. You've all been given Rolex watches of perfection. And somebody else paid the price. And it was Christ. And his glory has been revealed in who he is. And so Paul comes to people and says, you got to see, especially these people who knew the Old Testament, they understood what glory meant, they understood you couldn't get into God's presence without doing a lot of things, and they understood that a lot of death came from the whole thing. They understand now that in Christ, the, it's, it's been fulfilled. He's fulfilled all those demands. It's an all-surpassing glory, and it's been made available to us. And so he goes on to say, so what? Therefore... What's the therefore? Therefore, right? I mean, he says, therefore, because this is true, there are some things that we can know, right? He says right from the beginning in verse 12, therefore, we have hope. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul says we have hope. And that hope is, at the very least, what he's already talked about, that Christ has met the law's demands. That we have the Messiah who has come, and all that stuff that we were told to do, which we can't do, has been done. By him, And as a result of that as well, we have the hope that Christ can reveal himself to anyone. We have hope. That's why he says we can be bold, and we'll get to that next, but we have hope that Christ is in the business of changing hearts. That's the hope that we hold on to, especially with a whole group of people who we think he could never change them. That's the example he gives. This veil that is over, people can't see that Christ is the Messiah. A whole, whole group of people that he loves desperately. So anytime you start thinking Christ can't change fill in the blank, Paul starts saying, that's not true. He can change anyone. And Paul himself had that same ethnic heritage. And he met Christ. And this picture of of kind of veil which would cover you up either because somebody couldn't see you or because you couldn't see what was taken away when you see it is something he would know a lot about. This is kind of sight language. And how did he become a follower of Christ? He was blinded. Christ revealed himself to him and he couldn't see. But for the first time, he could actually see. You see? <laughs> 
I mean, that's what's happening. We were in our uh, ESL, English as a Second Language. We have a Bible study afterwards, and we're going to the book of John. We were in John 9 this week, and some of you know the story of this man who's blind. His disciples see him, and they say, hey, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Because their assumption was that if you have a physical problem, it's because you've sinned and you're paying the consequences. And Jesus, if you know the story, he says, well, you've completely missed the point. It has nothing to do with that. He's blind so that God's glory can be revealed. And he heals this man. And that man goes away healed, and the, the, the religious leaders start doing some sort of like, is he really healed? Was he, you know, was he just pretending to be uh, and you interview the parents, and they say, no, that's, that's our kid. That's, that's Johnny. He's, he sees. He, he was blind, but now he sees. And, and that guy, they interview him too, and he's like, I was blind, but now I can see, basically. Why, do you guys want to follow him too? That's what he says. Like, you in also? And they're like, no, because they wanted to protect everything that they had. And at the very end of it, you know, Jesus comes to them and basically says, you guys are the blind ones. You're not really seeing what's happening here. I am the light of the world and you cannot see it. And Paul's saying Christ, by virtue of his spirit, can give sight to the people who seem most far away. He himself experienced that. He's laying his life down for it. He's going everywhere saying, I was blind, but now I can see. And guess what? Christ can do the same thing for you. He can remove that veil that keeps you from seeing his full glory. And so we have hope, both that Christ has met the law's demands, but that he can reveal himself to anyone. Christ, verse 14, can take that veil away so people can see him for who he truly is. That's one of the therefores, but the other one you've already seen too. We have hope that we can be, because we have such a hope, we're very bold this word, I've, I've talked about this in Colossians as well, but was happily justified by several commentators suggesting that the idea of being bold means speaking with frankness, candor, openness. I mean, being bold is just being open, being genuine, being sincere about what, what you believe and what's happened to you. That's what happens to this guy in John 9. Well, do you want to follow him too? Here's what God did. For me, it's happened in John 4, the woman at the well. Come meet this guy who told me everything I ever did. Come on. She goes back to her, her people and says, you've got to see what, what's going on here. And why can we be bold? Well, at least for two reasons in this passage. One is that we ourselves are not the agent of change. This is a ministry of the spirit, not a ministry of put your name in the blank. <laughs> You're not the author of the new covenant. Christ is. And so we engage in our partners in a ministry of the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who transforms and changes. He's the one who does it. So we can be bold. Or we have the opportunity to be bold when we realize the business of change, that's up to this person. I, I can proclaim and declare what's true. And then God's Spirit is doing what he wants to do. And that ought to embolden us. But furthermore... We ourselves have been changed. If you are somebody who is a follower of Christ, it's not because you're a great person this morning. It's because you were given eyes to see. God's spirit awakened in you something that 
only he can do. No matter how much evidence I give you, no matter how many arguments I make or how, how beautiful the life I live might be or awful, it's not, that in and of itself is not what changes the heart. We sang this. Only he can change the leper's spots. Only he can make the heart new. Only he can take what's dead and make it alive. Isn't that how Paul began? In our hearts we feel the sentence of death, but this happened so that we might rely on God who raises the dead. Not you, not me. God's spirit does that. So we can be bold. And we can ask the question, why am I not? What am I not believing? But we ought to. Be able to be bold. This is a business of God's spirit doing what he wants, and he's done it in me. And I wanted you to hear from Bill Kernitz. He's going to share. When we did our evangelism training, we did one-minute testimonies. You're on the clock. Starting right now, you've got to run up here now. But Bill's just going to share a little bit even of how Christ took the veil away in his life. Thanks. Yeah, I... Uh... Thanks, Bill. I know there are others who could, change, who could share how Christ has changed them. He's the author of change. So we can be bold in that respect. And Paul encourages us to do that. And then finally, what he says is, we are free in verse 17. It's such, such a beautiful statement here. Where the spirit of the, the Lord is a spirit, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And you know, what kind of freedom are you talking about here, too? It seems like he has in view what he's already been discussing. At the very least, one of the things that we're free to do is enter into God's presence. Again, back in the book of Exodus, only Moses could go into God's presence and wear a veil. And when Christ came, it says the veil even to the temple was torn in two. And now we have access to the presence of God. We can go to God right now through Christ. The God whose glory fills the temple. And if we were in his presence with just a shred of sin like Isaiah, we would say, woe is me, I'm ruined. But because of Christ, access to the God of glory. You, in your seat, right now, because of what Christ has done. If you think about that for a second, this presence of God, that's the freedom that we have. There are a lot of people around the world trying to do a lot of stuff to get to God. Whether it's denying themselves pleasure, or obeying laws, and praying constantly They can never get to God's presence. And we just speak the name of Christ in the name of Jesus and bam, access. That's all surpassing glory. That's the freedom, at least some of the freedom we have. Certainly we also have freedom from condemnation. I keep doing that. Freedom from condemnation. The Old Testament brought condemnation. With the New Covenant, you are no longer condemned. There is No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. So if you feel that sting of condemnation, whether it takes the form of shame or disappointment or can't measure up, what do you do with that? You take it to Christ. You you are not condemned any longer. You are no longer a slave. You're a child of God. You have instant access to the one who's paid the price for you. And because of that as well, you're free from the dominion of sin. And that's a lot of language. What is the dominion of sin? That you have the capacity now because of Christ to walk in the spirit. You can know. We sing victory, victory, victory. There's a freedom there. You're not not on a path to nowhere. We're on a road to nowhere. Come on inside. No. We've got a destination because of Christ. And that's freedom. Because there are a lot of people who don't know that. There are a lot of people who feel the weight of what Bill was feeling. Surely I have sinned. I have disappointed. I cannot measure up. I am hiding something. And the weight of that is just tearing me apart. Or I change the rules of the game and pretend that it's actually not wrong anymore. And I'll feel better. It still doesn't work. Until you know forgiveness. And that's what we have is freedom from that. Freedom to enjoy the status of daughter, of son. Freedom to forgive as we are forgiven. That's why Paul's excited about it. That old stuff, that's gone. In Christ, it's new. And then he says, in a staggering fashion, that we're being transformed continually and progressively. In verse 18. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This verse assures us of something like Philippians 1.6. It was probably the first 
Verse I ever memorized, being confident of this, he who began a work in you will carry it on to completion. Until the day of Christ Jesus, till there's a time when he comes back. I hang on to that kind of stuff when I don't look, feel as if I'm you know, showing the ever-increasing glory of transformation in Christ. I mean, you know, when you're, you're honking your horn at somebody because they cut you off, and you're like, well, that doesn't really behold the Lord's glory type thing or something like that. He's, he's working sometimes behind the scenes, and we can't detect it, obviously, but there's a promise here that we are being transformed continually and progressively. This is the promise of ongoing construction in our souls. But it is derivative. That is, we are not the source of change. Christ is the truly, truly glorious one, and our glory is a reflective glory. We, who with unveiled faces, reflect the Lord's glory. And some translations read, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. And the point is, any change in us is simply reflective of Christ's glory. He is the truly glorious one, and we're just reflecting that reality. If we don't start there, then we'll end up back in the law, and we'll be faithful going up the mountain, getting punched in the face by Moses over and over again. Christ is a truly glorious one. We know that. We've seen him and we've beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. We're not glorious ones, although because we're in Christ and we're being transformed more and more like that, some of you know that C.S. Lewis quote, that if we could see us as we really are, some of us would be so glorious You'd be tempted to worship us and others so awful looking you want to flee from them like they're a demon. You're becoming more of one or the other. Those in Christ are going from one level of glory to another. We're on that glide path to perfection. And the time frame for that can be slow. Sometimes it feels like, I don't know, evolution. <laughs> right? Um, it's like very slow change over a long period of time. But it's not random. There's a difference there. <laughs> this is God's sovereign process of taking us as people who need to be shaped more into his image. And the promise is he's doing that. And he won't stop. At least for me, this gets us back to where we started. There's nothing, not a single thing outside of Christ's transforming power in our lives that holds any promise of lasting change. And that ought to keep us from stopping the pursuit, from looking for anything more apart from Christ. As we behold Jesus, we become more like him. And some of you know Alex Aronis, who was my spiritual mentor, who uh, died over, over the, the summer in July. He used to talk about being with Christ and like Christ and for Christ. And his, his basic premise was you can't be like and for Christ if you're not with him. Yeah. You have to spend time in his presence. He does something as you behold his presence that keeps us from just being moralistic. You can do better. Or just like social activists, let's change on our own. It comes from Christ. He's the source of change, and it leads to those things for sure. But this is where we start. And that's a continual transformation, an ongoing process that is very real. So real transformation looks more like looking more like Jesus. 
And that process does have an end. Now, for those of you who are theologians, you probably sit around and wonder about the ordo salutis all the time. Right? The order of salvation. And there's all these fancy words, you know, election and adoption and sanctification and justification and uh, all these ations going on too. But it ends at the very end with glorification. Glory. Full, the fullness of all we long to be. Now we see in part, then we'll see face to face. And we will be glorified. Our bodies will no longer be broken. There'll be no more distance and separation and misunderstanding and all the other, and a whole long list of isms. Forget about Asians, what about the isms that work against us? All gone. Because Christ, the truly glorious one, has ushered in fully this kingdom. That ordo salutis, the order of salvation, ends with glorification. But the glorification at the end isn't so that others can worship you. It's so that we can worship the one who is truly glorious. And I'll stop, I'll stop with this. This is something in the book of Revelation that is quite, quite intriguing. You know, in Revelation 21, there's the New Jerusalem. And uh, it's such a great passage. It talks about everything kind of being tied up. And there's a river of life in, in Revelation 22. And then and in Revelation 22, in 8, listen to what, what happens. I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and uh, had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. He was so overcome with all this. This angel who'd revealed him, he's bowing down to worship him. But he said to me, don't do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. That's what he says. I mean, we're t he's like, I'm going to worship something. I'm going to worship you. Big mistake, bro. You worship God, that's what this is all about. So even there in glory, it's, it's worshiping God. We're not the object of worship. He's the one who gets the glory. And yet in the meantime now, we are being transformed day by day. Sometimes you can't see it. Now, here's the thing. Either you're on that path toward this, this, this way and this eternal destination or one that will never be with God. And you'll be striving for the rest of your life. You'll breathe your last and you'll find out there is no more hope. There isn't. So Paul says, let this be the day when you get on the ever-increasing path of glory. And even the things we'll see in the weeks to come that are the hardest parts of life now, they're like nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in you. But for those who don't know Christ, the best experiences of life that's the best it's ever going to get for you. Might as well enjoy it, logically. It's not getting any better. And those are the two, the two options before you. All surpassing glory or the opposite, whatever it may be. Father, I pray.